Our theme for this academic year is the life of discipleship, and we're dedicating particularly this semester to a theology of the body or discipling the body. And I've said to you that we're unfolding slowly over the course of this semester um, seven building blocks for a theology of the body. And you might ask, uh, what, what is a theology of the body? What, why is this important for us? And why is that so integral to discipleship? And what I'm arguing is that um, a theology of the body is a particular Christian way of understanding the very nature of human embodiment. To put it actually more bluntly, we would say that God is actually talking to us through our bodies. That when he fashioned us, we are fashioned to actually embody and point to spiritual mysteries. So when Paul says in Corinthians that we are we are uh, stewards of the mysteries of God. He doesn't simply mean the things we have inside our head that we know about, but actually all the ways we embody the gospel. Indeed, I've used the phrase that we are icons, which means our very bodies are windows pointing to great spiritual realities. So we, today's our fourth building block. I want to just briefly review the first three because uh, I know that all of you come to chapel every single time. Um, But the first building block was that creation is good. And it's quite uh, unremarkable when we read it, because we don't realize the backdrop of it, but Genesis 1.31, God has already declared the world and the creation good seven times. And so when when he creates the world, this is in great contrast to the views of the ancient world, and indeed, even in the New Testament, which regarded the world as evil and the, the whole material universe as somehow entrapping and, and negative and part of something which had to be overcome so the real you, the, the, the spirit inside of you could be released. And this comes out in many, many forms in the, in the New Testament world, but you had kind of the passive, amoral view of Plotinus where because of the fall that we got trapped in bodies kind of a, uh, a, a predicament that even he's upset about, but it's happened. We've got to find a way to get out of our bodies. Or actually the Gnostic, the Manichees, who taught that there really was a, an evil insertion, a demiurge that actually created the world out of malevolence and actually captured us in these physical bodies and in this material world, and we must escape from it. The idea that we, the, real, the real you is inside of you and you must escape your body is beginning to sound almost modern again because we've come full circle but on this very, very challenging heresy the church battled. In fact, as I told you, I think some weeks ago, that one of the early uh, proverbs, you might say, of the ancient world was soma sema. Uh, soma is the word for body, same in the word for tomb. Your body is a tomb out of which we must escape. So we, are, we first started to establish that the Christian worldview is a dramatic, a dramatic upheaval of the whole view of the ancients and of the early churches surrounding a Greco-Roman environment which regarded the material world as evil. Two, we explored the fact that our bodies are actually icons of spiritual mysteries. This happens in many, many ways. We argue that when God created the world, even then, he was already anticipating the future incarnation of his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. So when he fashioned our bodies, he's actually anticipating that someday his son will enter into it. So when Hebrews quotes uh, Psalm 40, verse 6, 
If you look at the Hebrew, it says, um, a ear you have dug for me. It's a really interesting text, which I envisioned in that original context that God fashioned a lump of clay and then he dug out our ears and he formed us and shaped us out of clay to our bodies. But the Septuagint, the Greek version, actually rewards the text and next the larger point, a body you have prepared for me. So when Hebrews speaks of the incarnation, he actually has Jesus, the, the words of Psalm 40, verse 6, on the lips of Jesus in, in uh, Hebrews 10, 5, a body you prepared for me. Meaning not merely that he prepared a body inside the womb of Mary, which of course he did, but from the very fashion of creation, the context of Psalm 40, is that God had fashioned a body knowing that someday he would send our redemption through it in the greatest theodrama of the world in the incarnation. That's why, by the way, on a side note, and this is not Christmas time, but whenever anyone asks me, what is your favorite Christmas account in the Bible? I always say John's gospel. They go, what? John doesn't even have a Christmas story. Yes, he does. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He just left out the angels and the the, the, you know, the, the, the end keeper and the straw and the cattle lowing and all of that. He gives us the heart of the whole thing. And that is the heart of John, particularly John's message for us. We also saw that the physicality of the body is the very bridge by which God me, uh, bridges over to us the means of grace. So all the means of grace happen in and through the body. One of the great Wesleyan distinctives, you're we're baptized in a body, you take Eucharist in a body, you preach the gospel with your mouth, you hear it with your ears, you serve the poor with your feet, etc. It all happens in and through the body. What we didn't point out, of course, is that what you also know, of course, is that all of the means of grace are themselves icons. So when you take the, uh, you're, you're baptized, of course, in your body, but the, your baptism is itself an icon pointing or a picture pointing to Christ's death and resurrection, right? When, when you uh, preach the gospel, you're actually, we're told in Corinthians, Christ is preaching, the, addressing the world through us. We become part of his address to the world. When we take the Eucharist, we're actually taking symbolically the body, the fleshly body and the blood of Jesus into our lives, all the, even, even the serving the poor is meant to actually, we'll look at this more in a few weeks, this is actually meant to actually follow the Christ's incarnation. When you enter into the world's pain in your ministry, you're actually recreating in a small way the incarnation itself. All this happens into the body. And of course, Satan wants to take that frame, take that, that, that window, the icon is a window into these spiritual realities. He wants to take that window and turn it and twist it around toward yourself. We call this, uh, historically, it's called the incurvatus in se, the heart or life turned in upon itself. And the early, the early church actually used two images for what we call the fall. One is the fall. The other is the turning, the great turning, turning from God, turning to ourselves. And this, of course, is one of the great challenges. So all of the means of grace can also become means of disgrace, so you, your eye is meant to be looking at the things of God, like in Psalm 127. You're looking at God's, uh, and like a servant looking to his master. And yet, uh, in, I'm sorry, 123. But when you look at that, the, the Satan can turn it so you look toward uh, yourself or look toward evil. You know, your feet are meant to go out and bring the gospel into the earth. But Proverbs 7 says, your feet are also going to be lured and turning to the house of the prostitute. 
Uh, you have James 3 saying that, you know, your tongue is meant to declare the praise of God. It can be turned into gossip. It can set the whole world ablaze. So all of the means of grace can become means of disgrace if we allow Satan to turn and twist this window. So this is what we've called this inward gaze, this uh, what I think John Paul II beautifully calls the strains of solitude and what Charles Taylor calls of our whole society, the whole Western world, the caught in the malaise of eminence. We've lost the transcendent. So part of our desire is to really recapture that for all of you. And the third building block was last time the design of marriage. We spent a lot of time exploring how the culture has commodified marriage and the church has largely adapted itself to the world's view of marriage. So in the world's view, marriage is functional, it's utilitarian, it satisfies social needs, sexual needs, provides economic stability, and therefore any kind of social arrangement is possible because it is socially determined. But the Bible, in contrast, gives us not a commodified view, but a covenantal view. And we explored um, many of the key features of marriage. Uh, we talked about being unitive, the two become one flesh, procreative, be fruitful and multiply, binary, he created them male and female. He created them. And, of course, donative or self-giving. Our bodies are not actually for ourselves, Paul tells us, but for one another. So we're going to now turn to childbearing. But before I jump into today's theme, I want to say again a word at last time to those who are unmarried and do not have children. Uh, next week, you or next week, next time I preach number third, we're going to explore uh, what was finally going to bring these things into full focus, the fact that your body has two meanings, one of which we're developing in the last two times, which is the spousal meaning of the body. These are all part of the way we relate our bodies one to another. This next time we'll look at the celibate meaning of the body. So we're going to actually have a whole week where we explore the glorious vision of the celibate life focused entirely on the eschatological life. Uh, we also acknowledge up front that um, in looking at children, of course, that all of us, one thing that all of us have in common here is that we ourselves are children. We are children. And by the way, my mother is 94 years old, and she will remind me of that. Uh, and so it's okay to remember that. We're still children. And therefore, we remember that, what it means that God, we're part of this fruitfulness. So we come now to this fourth building block, childbearing as reflection of the Trinity. Now, if you ever have seen the comedian and political commentator Bill Mayer and his host Real Time, uh, he is known for his biting, sarcastic humor. Uh, he identifies as an atheist uh, or agnostic, and he's a very harsh critic of all things religious. In fact, in 2008, he even invested in a film called Religulous, which is a combination of the words religion and ridiculous, to show uh, and to debunk all religion. Well, on his 500th episode, this was in 2000, uh, what was it, just a few years ago, because he started in 2003, on his 500th episode, Bill Mayer wanted to celebrate his impact on the culture. And this is what he said, I'm quoting him, exactly here on his, after 16 years of hosting Real Time. He said, we were on the air in 2003. Since then, weed has become increasingly legal. 
religion is on the decline and less people are having children. You're welcome, America. Now, what strikes me as interesting, I would love to discuss the weed, but I'm going to put that aside right now. <laughs> but I really was interested in his comment, the third point, that people are, less people are having children. It's something that he wants to celebrate. In fact, it does actually reflect that there is a, quite a significant decline in childbearing in the current generation. Thousands of married couples are deciding to not have children. Now, the scripture, of course, celebrates uh, fruitfulness of the womb. In fact, it's the first command of the Bible. In Genesis, the very first words out of the mouth of God to the new creations, be fruitful and multiply, as we heard today. But childbearing, of course, is not honored in our culture today. When you think about that, why is that? I would say that this, in some ways, uh, when you think about all the issues that this series deals with and reflects on and tries to cast a positive vision, in some ways, a sermon on childbearing might sound and feel the most controversial at all, uh, of all. And what's so interesting is it will be unintelligible to the whole history of the world that such a theme could be, an, could be controversial. But it all, that itself should teach us something about where we stand today. Augustine, in his famous treatise on marriage, which become one of the great building blocks of the Christian view of marriage, argued that there were three bona or goods of marriage. He called them first the, the good of offspring, the bonum prolis, the good of fidelity, bonum fide, and the good of the unbreakable bond, the bonum sacramenti. Now, he lists these in ascending order, beginning with the whole role of fruitfulness. Now, what Augustine and what Christians in general have argued is that the whole of creation, let's put ourselves aside for a minute, the whole of creation, we're seeing right now the death of creation as winter rolls upon us. And next spring, we're going to be treated once again to this amazing, amazing array of the fruitfulness of all of creation as everything comes back to life. There'll be endless, endless childbirths of, of animals and you know, deer, of everything all across the world. And so every year, the world has as an icon or a pointer, the whole of creation testifies to the amazing fruitfulness of God. Whenever God touches anything, it becomes fruitful. It, it grows. It, it expands. It, it has ways of, of multiplying and reflecting his glory. And so we are part of this fruitfulness. So when we are created, we become part of that fruitfulness. And what we're going to do is actually zero in on several important gifts which are wrapped up in the whole notion of childbearing. The first is this. This is amazing. Think about it. We have been given the capacity and the gift of God to be the creators. I'll use that word you know, almost scandalizingly so, but the creators of new image bearers. Now, you think about in the, in the whole apex, and this, of course, was captured so well by Michelangelo in that famous, you know, Sistine Chapel, when, when God imparted the imago Dei to us, that we are creating the image of God, this, of course, is one of the great highlights. We spent a whole week exploring what that means, creating the image of God. But here we find in childbearing, we're able to actually create, become, the, the language actually in, historically in the church is 
participants with God, we become participants with God in producing new image bearers. Now, this is an awesome and sacred privilege. We're almost allowed, in a sense, God wants us to know what it's like to be a creator. This is a divine prerogative, and there's no, no one can put, be put in that spot. He is the creator. But he wants us to understand, like a little sea creator, what it means, what it must be like to create. So he invites us into the most sacred act of his creation of male and female, men and woman, and he allows us to create. And this is what comes out in Genesis 4.1, where Eve says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and she said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I have been able to produce another image bearer with the help of the Lord. And of course, the word knew here, Adam knowing him, is a euphemism for sexual intimacy. Now, Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians 7 and says, see how important the body is, because he said when the Corinthians were having sex with prostitutes, he was saying, you're actually, by doing that, you're becoming one flesh with her and her with him, which is a violation of the Genesis text, you two shall become one flesh. In other words, and of course, prostitution was the presenting problem, but it's a synecdoche for all unauthorized sexual encounters outside of wedlock. So this sacred covenant of man and wife is designed because it has the sacred privilege of producing another image bearer. Now this brings us to the second real amazing point about childbearing. And I think this is actually at the heart of the whole thing, is that childbearing is the fountainhead of community. Now, not only do we become co-creators with God in allowing us to produce another image bearer into the world, but we actually find that it's a pointer to the very community of God himself in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, we've already seen uh, so far in this series, there are three, we're now on a third icon. The first is that your body, just, just your body as itself, is an icon or a window to the future incarnation. We're seeing that through marriage, we are icons of Christ in the church. Now we're seeing through the birth of children, we become icons of the Trinity itself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then Father, Mother, Child are meant to reflect that internal colloquy and communion of the Trinity itself. So this is where we find where where Augustine makes out the unbreakable bond. When you're married, the two become one flesh. You're united in a sexual union that is able to be fruitful and produce plurality. So the whole point of this, this is the oneness becomes threeness, right? So the whole nature of a sexual union exclusively in marriage, which produces fruitfulness, covenantal fruitfulness, is meant to reflect the very nature of God, who is one and three. In fact, it actually shows us in the icon that God is not three gods, but he's one, and yet he's a plurality. He's a community. So God, in his very nature, is community, and he invites us into his community. This is why, by the way, that Augustine and later Luther, again, comes back to it in his commentary on Galatians, and even Karl Barth in his later writings, is that the, na- the fundamental heart of sin is not simply forensic, it's relational. 
So if you say that we're all sinners, what do we mean by that? Do we mean simply that we have disobeyed God and disobeyed his commandments? If so, sin is fundamentally forensic. We have disobeyed God's commands. But it's much more than that. that that's certainly a manifestation of it a thousand ways. But it's also a turning from the relationship of God who invites us into his community, the Trinity. Instead, we turn it upon ourselves. And so that's why the, the sin, as incarvatus in say, sin is that which you turn your heart in upon itself is at the point a relational rejection of God because the Trinity is the ultimate community. That's why the Puritans said, you know, God in himself is a sweet society. It's acknowledging that we are meant to be brought into this Trinity. So the Father, you know, the, the Son is begotten from the Father. The Spirit proceeds from the, the, from the Father. And in the same way, the Father begets, the mother bears, the children proceed. We are actually mirroring this great divine mystery. And then thirdly, and this is maybe the most obvious one of all if you are a parent, childbearing is a means of sanctification. <laughs> I do hear an amen. You know, if you think about it, uh, we've talked about sin in this community as sin as the, all the places that you elect the absence of God, where we want the community of God to be shut out of us. And you know, when you get married and you have children, there is an, a powerful turning that happens where you're turned toward another. And you can't, it's a love you cannot even describe. Because suddenly you realize that you're in this situation where father, mother, mother, and child, there's this love bond. Again, God wants us to understand the love and the bond that he has within the Trinity itself. There's no way you can simply talk about it. I mean, the Bible does talk about it, but it's, it ultimately, it's something you have to experience. And we experience this in part. We'll look later. There's other ways that we, this is experience, we experience this. But one of the ways God's designed to experience this is through childbearing, where you're brought into this unbelievable bond of love. And you'll actually see this amazingly, with even, especially with single mothers who have been left in a very difficult situation. We all have seen this, where single moms will sacrifice everything to make something better for their children. It, it's unbelievable. And something, you know, when you, when you bring home, you know, the child, and, you, you know, in the hospital, you have, like, support around you, and there's nurses coming and going, all that. But at some point, you get in the car and you come home. And you bring the bassinet inside the house. And there's something that kind of comes over you. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> This is going to be a sanctifying experience. <laughs> and, you know, um, I've never, I, I have been a pastor for years, and I've, of course, like all of you, spoken to families over the years, and I've never met a single mother or father yet that said, I just enjoy getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning and changing a diaper. It just doesn't happen. I, I remember one time we were at, the, we were at a, uh, watching Bethany's graduation service, and in a classic, classic father-child moment, our son didn't show up for graduate. We didn't, why well, wasn't there? Well, he snuck in late, and he came up behind me, and it's like the service is going on. The service is like unfolding. He whispered this in my ear. Dad, I'm sorry I'm late. I wrecked the car on the way over here. <laughs> and like any parent, I said, we'll discuss it later. 
Those has great moments. I mean, I have such great memories like that. I mean, at the time, you know, I didn't feel that way. But there's this great moment because you're brought into this bond. It's just part of life, and you're learning something about the nature of this earthly icon pointing to the other. Let me just say a word also to those who are either called to celibacy or those who long to have children and cannot. There's so many ways God has also provided alternative icons. For example, uh, the church itself is, of course, all of us are adopted into the family of God. So adoption is another one of the, the shared realities of all, all, all Christians. We all have been adopted into the family of God. So adoption also is one of the icons where God has, in certain cases, given people this great privilege of adopting a child when they're unable to have one for themselves. The other part of this are those who are called the celibate life, and throughout the New Testament, the language of childbearing and of children is adopted for your spiritual children. So Paul regularly, though Paul is in the celibate life, Paul regularly refers to his disciples as his children. In fact, he even uses affectionate language like 1 Corinthians 4.14, my dear children. And then Paul really scandalizes us in 1 Galatians 4.19 by actually entering into the language of motherhood where Paul says to the Galatians, I am in the pains of childbirth as I give birth to you, my dear children. So here's Paul actually entering into the icon of childbearing, though he is called a celibate life, because they have spiritual children. So you have biological children, you have spiritual children, and you also have adopted children. All of these are part of this wonderful icon that is there for us. Now we sang Psalm 127, and if you know the Psalms, you'll know that Uh, That's one of only two psalms by Solomon, Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. They're meant to be pairs with each other. Psalm 72 is Solomon at the height of his power, his kingly power. He's pictured a man reflecting God's character as he rescues the poor from oppression. He rules the nations and dispenses wisdom. But in Psalm 127, he's looking back on his life and Solomon actually mentions three vanities in the text, and we, we sang them together. The vanity of building houses, guarding cities, and getting up early and going to work. Now, these are all things he spent a lot of his life doing. And he looks back and says, in a certain respect, they're vanity. Now, when I was a pastor, my first charge was known as, the, in those days, the Nacoochee Valley Circuit. Now, whenever you hear the word circuit, you know what that means. you got a ton of churches. And so I was on my version of a horseback. It was, in our case, a, a, a Buick, 1973 Buick LeSabre. But we would go from church to church, and we had four churches, Nacoochee, uh, Loudsville, Chattahoochee, and Mount Pleasant. And we were assigned these four churches, and uh, they, the demographic of the church was very highly elderly people. In fact, just to give you a little feel for it, in my first two years, now Dale, think about this, I'm not sure what your situation is like, but in my first two years, I had 52 funerals in two years. That's one every a week. So, yeah, I kind of got the funeral liturgy in my head. In fact, one of the most um, interesting moments of my ministry was when 
a woman, uh, when I was shaking the hands, I left the door one you know, Sunday morning, she said to me, uh, kind of just, I think it was just like fact-telling, fact-speaking, she said to me, uh, preacher, because they always call me preacher, not Tim, preacher, there's two kinds of preachers in the world. I said, well, what are the two kinds? She says, there's Marian preachers and there's Berrian preachers, and I think you're a Berrian preacher. <laughs> okay, well, that was my first designation. But it is true that I spent countless hours, I mean, Julie knows this so well because we were together so much of this, we spent countless hours with people at the end of their lives. And looking back on it, and it, it, may, it often happened, you know, I mean, Christmas Eve, New Year's Eve, we have so many memories of uh, one time we got on a car, we, we had a one-week vacation, we were going to Maryland, just had got there, had to turn around and come back. And we had so much of this, my first two years of ministry, because I said every other week, remember? It seemed like that. It was, on average, it was that. So anyway, the point being, we spent a lot of time with people at the end of their lives. And I was like 24 years old, had my whole life in front of me, and I listened to what they talked about. And they, you know, they, these are people that had tremendous lives, amazing careers. They had spent a lot of time getting up early, going to work, a lot of time building houses, and all those things. They'd done all those, and it was good they did all those things. They're important things that they had to do in their lives to provide for their families. When they got to the end of their life, they reflected differently about their life. And often I found them talking about their children, their grandchildren, or even great-grandchildren. And this is partly what is trying to be captured in Psalm 127. The, in fact, they are gifts from God, great heritage from God. And let me speak just to close out pastorally to all of you, most of you here that are in that stage in life. I know that many of you are eager and longing to experience a lot of things in your life. And be tempted to see children as an interruption and an impediment to so many things you really want to do. I totally understand it, because it, it was a huge interruption for us in so many ways. Because by nature, we're like you. We, you know, we were like, let's go, I want to go see every state park in the country. I've always wanted to do that. I never did that. Maybe you wanted to, um, you know, go bungee jump off the highest cliff in the world, in Switzerland. Fun thing to do. Maybe you don't want to get up at 2 in the morning and change a diaper. Maybe you want to eat out on a Friday night and not be interrupted by a crying child. I, remember, I have so many memories of us going out to eat and, and just screaming bassinet coming on the side. But let me just encourage you to think about it as a different kind of journey. It's a journey that has some definite challenges to it, but the joys and the long-term fruit are unbelievable. I'm looking at it now. My youngest here. It's unbelievable. That's all I can say. And I encourage you to not dismiss it. We live in a world of cultural brokenness. I know some of you are also would say this. We would love to have children, but who would bring a child into this kind of cultural mess? I totally get it. People, we used to say the same thing 30, 40 years ago. We did. But let me say something. This world needs your children. This world needs, because your children 
are the agents of great awakening. That's, what, that's what's awaiting us. I think my whole life is about preparing for your children's generation. That's what we're doing. We're in a pre-revival state here. We, the Great Awakening has not happened. We have to walk through the exile. We're not on the Temple Mount. We're in near Nehemiah trying to rebuild the walls. But that generation, your generation, that, that, that is the one that's going to usher in a Great Awakening. And I want, your, I want you to have a vision for that and believe God for that. I believe that with all the challenges, the, the beautiful promise of fruitfulness should be at the heart of the hopes and longings of all generations. Thanks be to God. Amen.